as we grow in our careers and our lives, the things that we once did and found joy in and could do like might not be the same. And I think leaning on a lot of the knowledge and experience I've had the last 20 years is maybe what makes the podcast work. And if I had found it 10 years ago, aside from podcasting being much smaller, like not impossible, but it might not have worked. Is that why you podcast? Do you podcast to build a network? No. Why do people you podcast? That, there are people that podcast to build a network. I podcast because I just really like a certain topic and I like sharing it and I want to help other people like live more optimized lives. And there are specific, that's a specific trade-off. Do I want to get this person now? Do I want to have the content now? You know, Tim Ferriss told me once, like he liked doing remote interviews because he could have his notes there and it would just be a little bit less, you know, feeling like you have to be on point because you're in person, someone's watching you. And I was like, I care much more about the content that I'm going to get than like the relationship I'm personally going to build. None of my listeners benefit that much from me building a deep, deep, deep relationship. Mm. Um, so I think you've listened. Like, I feel like I can have great conversations remote, but I just don't build the personal connection as well. But like, that's not the goal. The goal here is is to like make the best show, offer the best content. And if I don't build the best relationships, okay. Yeah, it's so fascinating. It's a different way of doing it because <laughs> I'm doing it for relationships. I didn't realize that I want to learn more about people, connect deeply with people. But I didn't realize like that was my primary aim when I started, which totally changes what the show will become if you start it with, I'm going to make this a relationship-based podcast and I'm going to build relationships for myself. Because I think a lot of people listen to this podcast and they're like, okay, well, um, it's it's interesting that networking and connecting with people is like what I'm most excited by. But yeah. That's been the I've got like twenty years on you, <laughs> you know. Some, so I think I've like I've gone through that phase of my life. It's That's like I it. built that network. Now I'm like, okay, I want to do an episode on cruises. I don't know a lot about cruises. Who's the absolute best person in the world to talk about cruises? How do I make sure that I have all the notes ready to get to the most information? Like I want every episode to be like a masterclass on a topic. Yeah, and it's going to be if I'm focused on trying to build a relationship with a person. I might ask questions about who they are, what they do. I always joke, like my podcast interviews, it's not like let's deep dive on who you are. It's like let's find the most efficient way to take everything you know about this thing <laughs> and help the listener be 10x better at that thing. Yeah. And so someone might drop, oh, you know, I did this crazy tour of duty in Iraq. And I'm like, I would love personally to go down that path. But we're here to talk about cruises. So like I just don't go down that path. Going down that path, would help me build a better relationship with that person. But it would not help get the most out of the topic we're trying to describe. Every now and then I do an interview that like doesn't have a path. Like I did an interview with Derek Sivers. I know you also did. That interview was not like a masterclass on a topic. It was like, let's learn from someone who just knows a lot about life. And I think that one uh, was a little different. Well, I love that episode so much. <laughs> it makes sense why I connected so deeply with that one in particular because you guys, it it was remarkable to hear the ways in which you you had both explored life in slightly different ways and how he was able to see your perspective and you were able to see his. And it felt like you were both able to come away with something which was really valuable for me as the listener. Um, on that topic, 
of what you guys talked about, maximizing versus satisfying. And it was such a, a brilliant idea that I'd never given much thought to, but helped explain so much why I'm so content with life. It's like, I'm just satisfied with what is. Does your maximizing get in the way of your own happiness? It's funny. I can't remember what book goes into this. That, that like maximizers actually make better decisions. Um, like just on the net, the decision is better, but they are less happy with the outcome. Um, so I would say there are a lot of times where maximizing gets in the way in, in the like micro, right? If I go to a restaurant, sometimes, you know, I'll be like, I'll go to this restaurant, I'll sit down. I'm in like a, you know, just like a normal Italian restaurant. I'm like, I kind of want eggplant Parmesan. And like, if I just sat down and ordered the eggplant Parmesan, I'm sure it's fine. But I'm like, if I pull out my phone, I start looking at Yelp reviews and I'm like, well, everybody says that I should really be getting the chicken piccata. And I'm like, I don't even want chicken piccata, but if that's what they're known for, like maybe that's what I should be getting. And like one guy said the eggplant Parmesan wasn't that great. So like, had I just ignored that all, sat down and got the chicken, eggplant Parmesan, I probably would have been so happy and whatnot. But instead I'm like trying to make sure that I get what's the best thing that you guys do, what's unique on the menu. Um, so I don't know. I think the worst case would be if I didn't also enjoy that process. Mm. So that I enjoy the process makes it less frustrating that it can be a painful process at times. But I don't know. It does get in the way and I'm getting better at figuring out where the maximizing is worth it and when to satisfy. Where is it worth it? I think really big decisions, it's worth it. I think areas where you get tremendous joy out of the process, it's worth it. Mm. Um, I think... For me, I spent, let's call it 30 to 40 hours trying to optimize and maximize the value of my insurance decision for homeowners auto insurance. I went, so I talked to every insurance carrier I could find. I talked to like four brokers. I read multiple full like 40 page policies. And I'm like, I now understand absolutely everything. The difference between these like HO1, HO2, everything. I went crazy. And... The end result was that I was able to get a policy that probably saved me, I don't know, $400 a year, which I could tell you just like my time spending 40 hours to save $400 a year, probably not a good outcome. However, I made an episode about all of it. And I've gotten emails from listeners that are like, I listened to this episode and I saved $14,000. I saved $7,000. So if I sum total the value of dollars just that one episode has saved listeners. It's easily six figures or maybe seven figures. I don't know, but at least six for sure. Uh, and that's just what I know about. So if I could save people over $100,000, well, now that 40 hours feels like it was pretty well spent. It's not my money, but at this point in life, like I get a lot of satisfaction out of helping other people save money, helping other people make decisions. And for many of them, I've built a relationship through my show that they're like, oh, I can trust you. And they don't have to do the maximizing. And when we were getting set up here, I was talking about the paint color on the walls. And I was like, I found this couple, Becky and Chris on YouTube. And I was like, these guys have the most beautiful setup for their podcast, their studio at home. They are awesome. If anyone's building a studio or serendipitously want to learn about traveling by helicopter, they bought a helicopter also. Oh like cool little YouTube channel. And she's like, ah, we're going to paint the walls. I can't even remember the name of the color. That's how little I researched what this color was. I just watched it. She was like, that color is like a great color for studio rooms. I was like, great. I'm just going to do that color. I didn't even think about it because I found someone that I believe had done the research and I could trust them. So, you know, maybe I'm taking a little bit of pain by doing all this maximizing myself. But if it saves 
thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, each individually, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. I don't know. It seems like it was worth it. Yeah, definitely. How long have you been doing this? Price all your life, if I had to guess. Uh, it's funny. I always try to ask my parents as if they'll like come to some new conclusion. I'm like, hey, how long have I been doing this? <laughs> and they never have like a great origin story for it. Uh, I know that when I was in high school, I went to boarding school. Many kids that go to boarding school's parents just give them unlimited amounts of money. Hmm. Mine did not. Uh, so I went to boarding school and every night there was like a 30 minute window after, for anyone who doesn't know a lot about boarding school, we basically had st like study hours. So for two hours at night, it was like 7.30 to 9.30. You had to be in your room, in your dorm doing homework. Then from 9.30 to 10, you could leave. You could, you know, go hang out with girls. Like you could do whatever you want. And then at 10, you had to be back. So we had this 30 minute window. And during that 30 minute window, everybody was ordering pizzas and eating because I don't know, in high school, you just want to eat pizza. <laughs> Well, I didn't have my parents' credit card. So I was like, how do I get pizza? So every night I would order a pizza. I would sell six slices and eat two. And I'd sell the six slices to pay for the, all, the whole pizza. And I'd end up getting pizza for free every night. So I know that in high school, I was optimizing to get free pizza. And I think the theme of my optimization, just to kind of set a level playing field, is not about trying to save the most money. If I wanted to save the most money, I would not live in the Bay Area. If I wanted mm. to... It's about finding a way to have that best experience at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. So I want to go on the $50,000 vacation for $5,000. I don't want to just not take a vacation or I don't want to just like drive to a park five minutes from my house and call it a vacation. Like I actually want to go on the incredible thing. I just don't want to spend the money to do it or I don't want to, you know, have the hassle or, you know, whatever, have the experience that I couldn't otherwise have. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's interesting how like, when you think that way can start bleeding into your life and you can start optimizing for the sake of optimizing, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm always doing that. Yeah. Well, it's like you, in examples that you've mentioned publicly is like net worth, you had a spreadsheet and then you're like, what am I, what am I trying to get a higher net worth for exactly? Like, and you were having trouble figuring that out. Like the, the life insurance is a good example as well. It's just like, what areas do you think you are most satisfied with that you have maximized? I mean, I have spent at least 10 years, like really in various shapes or forms, like focusing on personal finance, everything, investing. Like, I wouldn't say I'm, I think I've maximized for myself, which doesn't mean I'm doing the most I could do. There are people out there building crazy, you know, custom uh, algorithms for trading. I'm like, I'm very content with my like passive index fund strategy, but like I found where I think it works and I don't even have to think about it. And it's so great. I mean, all these people are like, Oh, I got to worry about this. I got to worry about that. My investment. I don't even think about it. I don't even know. I don't even check the stock market every day. Cause I've just like, I have a plan and it works. I feel like I've, I've nailed that area. I don't know. I got very lucky and found someone that I've now been with for over 20 years now. So wow. like that's worked really well, almost 20 years, uh, 20 years next year. Uh, but like 20 years is a long time. So, uh, I feel like I nailed that one. So like, yeah, I had no more, no more work there. Cause I found someone awesome. So I don't know. It's hard to pick the areas right now in my mind, but I'm sure there are some where this is true. Did you have a plan for finding a wife? No, I met my wife sophomore year of college. 
Like, I think most people sophomore year of college are not looking for their wife. They're just like looking for someone to have fun with. And I just, and I wasn't even looking for someone to have fun with. I was in a business fraternity. It was a co-ed business fraternity. And my wife today was my little brother. And so like, <laughs> you know, it was a randomly assigned, here's your little brother. And then it's like, let's kind of go hang out. And I'm like, oh, we should go out to lunch. We go to these things. And then we ended up starting dating kind of. And it was really awkward because at the end of the like pledge period, which she was in, uh, they gave, they were supposed to give an award out to like the big little brother combo that did the most activities together. And they were like, they everyone was like supposed to submit a list of all the things you'd done together. And we were like, let's just not submit that form because like everyone else was like the person who won was like, we went to lunch twice and had a coffee. And we were like, uh, she's left at my house like 20 times. Like it was just like, it was not the right fit. So, uh, we, we rescinded our, our submission there. We didn't even submit in the first place. Um, so it wasn't a plan. It just happened. And then we dated for, you know, almost, you know, eight or nine, 10 years mm. and then got married and started a family. And so it wasn't, there was no master planning. It was just like, this is awesome. Let's keep doing this. What would you say are, are the hacks to, if you were 22 graduating from college and you wanted to find a wife, what would you tell that person to do? Obviously you're never in this position. I know. I was like, <laughs> I've both never been in this position. And when I was the closest to this position, there weren't date like maybe there was like eHarmony, but there weren't like dating apps. See, I like could that. imagine you being the type of person that would like have a spreadsheet of like <laughs> if I were dating today, yeah. you know, it would probably be I don't know. I I think my style of dating would would be I, I don't really know, but it would I'd like to think it would be just like cut through all the BS. It's mm-hmm. like First date, let's go do something absolutely crazy and like let's talk about like four topics that are the things that people are probably going to disagree on the most. Smart. And, you know, I don't know how that would go. (laughs) But uh, it's just like, you know, cut through that. I was lucky because we weren't trying to do it. Like this wasn't the plan when it happened. Um, I don't know what advice I have. I have have advice for a lot of areas in life. Dating is one where I do not have advice. That's hilarious. But the reason why I bring up your wife is because I noticed when I was listening to the podcast, her do advertisements on the show. And I'm like, wow, that's such a cool touch. And it feels so seamless and it feels so real. Like it, it helps humanize the host to have your significant other do ad reads for you. And I'm like, I know Chris was probably just busy, didn't want to do it. But like, this is a cool touch to it. It was actually funny because I was talking to my wife. So Viore is a sponsor. Uh, mm-hmm. I wear a lot of your, I'm literally, this is a Viore shirt. Uh, and I was talking to her, I was like, oh, I want to change it up. Right? Like, I've heard from a lot of sponsors that, you know, if you have the same ad read every single week, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well. So maybe you change it up every other week, every two or three times, have four in rotation. And I was talking to her about it and she was like, well, you're always doing the ad read, but like, I think maybe there was a holiday coming up like Mother's Day or I think it was Christmas actually, it was coming up. And I was like, I want, I want to make sure people know that this isn't just a guy's clothing brand. I was like, why don't you do the ad read? Let's see if it works. Well, AB tested. They've been a sponsor long enough that if I ran my Viore ad and your Viore ad in two weeks apart, and we kind of like adjust if the two episodes, the two episodes actually ended up doing about the same performance, her episode actually performed better. Really? Now, is it because it was her or is it because it was different? I don't know, but it certainly didn't perform worse. And so she's now done a few ad reads just because I'm like, 
talking about this brand. And she's like, I love that brand. Why don't I try? Mm. And 45, 40% ish of our audience is female, maybe 30 to 40, depending on the platform. And so I was like, you could probably speak to that audience better than I could. So why don't you try? And I talk about her a lot in the show. So I think someone who listens a lot knows who she is, probably knows her by name. She's done an episode with me. We did a joint interview in an episode. Um, we're going to do another episode probably in these same chairs uh, in a week or two. Uh, you know, like I think if she loved doing content creation as much as I did, she'd probably be on the show a lot more. Um, I think she likes doing deals a lot more. So like <laughs> that, that's like what she's amazing at. Um, but yeah, she is the behind the scenes listen to every episode before it goes out, give feedback, helps write. She's probably helped written 50% of the titles of the episodes. Wow. Um, I would say it definitely feels like a family business. It doesn't feel like my thing. It feels like our thing. That's really cool. On the topic of the podcast that you've recorded, do you have any tips for interviewing or talking to somebody who is very close to you, especially in a recorded conversation? I think I've never been on reality television, <laughs> but I imagine based on what I've seen that at a certain point, you just kind of forget that there's all these cameras there. You forget that there's all these microphones there. And I think if you're trying to have a recorded conversation with someone, maybe plan on the first, like don't talk about anything you actually care about for the first 20 minutes so that you can get to the point that you're like not thinking about, Oh, is the lighting? What's the lighting going? Oh, how do I sound? What's going on? Um, I find that for people who aren't often recording, it takes them some time to get into that mode where they're not focused on anything other than just having a conversation. And I think, you know, we, I don't even think we, you know, when we first recorded this, we just jumped right into it. Um, but if I was talking to someone who's never done an episode before, never done a recording before, maybe I'm really close to, and we've never been in this kind of situation before, I would just kind of start it rolling and start talking, you know, even like the conversation we had before we started recording, I would have that conversation in front of the microphones mm. and catch up together and then get to it. Um, because I think, and, and make sure that if there's stuff you really want to talk about in a recorded way, don't bring that up until you're feeling like people are very comfortable. Yeah. It's funny too, because I've been thinking about playing around with the wireless mics that you can't really see mm -hmm. just because it helps people forget that they're recorded in real life and just makes them feel more comfortable. It's like there's no actual um, all this stuff, which is, is helpful in some way, but also harmful in another. Going back to your wife and and speaking about just the relationship as a whole, you seem like proud that it's been almost 20 years. And, yeah. and relationships are the part of life that I think gets talked about the least, but is potentially the most important in terms of general society and conversation. So like, what do you think has contributed to 20 years of a successful marriage? A relationship. I don't think either one of us, I mean, everyone that knows us would know, like we weren't rushing into this, assuming it was just going to be a marriage at the beginning. It was like, let's make sure we can do, uh, like we can get along in every way, shape or form. Mm. So we traveled around the world for seven months together, um, on like $30 a day staying in like, I mean, we stayed in some places that were a dollar a night. We stayed at like, we stayed in some grungy places, uh, and we were with each other literally like 24 seven for almost, you know, eight months. Wow. Uh, so that was a good experience. Like testing, we were like, this will test us in ways that a marriage wouldn't. So if, if this doesn't work, that doesn't mean a marriage doesn't work. But like, if this does work, maybe it will. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we just, 
we weren't trying to rush into things. So for the first, gosh, we met in 2004 and we got married in 2012. So, uh, you know, we had eight years to kind of see, see who we were and, and we were never like, oh, we have to get married tomorrow. Like it just wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of pressure. In fact, at one point, one of the reasons we were like, should we get married? Obviously we both wanted to be together forever and we were already together for eight years, but we were like, at what point do you do this major thing that for a lot of other people changes your relationship? But for you guys, if you're already together, we have some friends that are just together and they're just not married. Hmm. Um, we were just sick of everyone being like, oh, is that your girlfriend? And I was like, no, I've been with her for eight years. Like we live together. It's not girlfriend. You know, I felt like the titling was almost like a, a big push. You'd outgrown it. Yeah, we were ready to not be introducing each other as like our boyfriend. Because uh, for us, it was like much more. Hmm. And I wouldn't say we like needed the like legal certificate to be able to feel good ourselves. But it just felt there was no great way. Yeah, I just felt weird if I was at a dinner party. I was like, "Oh, this is my life partner." It's like, it just feels like let's just let's just get it done. Um, but we'd already decided that we wanted to be together. Like it, for us, it was like a weird, uh, you know, we obviously want to do this, but there was no reason to do it because every nothing really changes. The moment you get married, legally, lots of things changes, but practically, like we were living together, we were doing all the things, and then we were married. And it's like kind of nothing really changed. Uh, so. I don't know. You, at least you get to call someone your wife or your husband and not have to call them your girlfriend. Once we get fiance, it also changed. So like, we were like, do we really need to rush into the, you know, we have a new label now. It works. You, yeah, that makes sense. When you, when you I think about the actual relationship, what practices do you think have contributed most to its success? There are some areas in life where we're like very methodical, where we are very methodical about what we do. I wouldn't say we have like a practice. Hmm. You know, I did an interview with Cody Sanchez and she's got this like team thing where like they check in in a certain <laughs> way every week. And I wouldn't say we really have that. I think we just don't BS. Like we just tell each other how we're feeling. Uh, we're not afraid to like piss each other off if that's what it takes to explain what's going on and how we're doing. Um, I would say I did an episode with Nate and Kaylee Klemp um, who wrote this book called The 8080 Marriage. And I think we adopted a lot of principles from it, not in a like, we do this on Thursdays, but the idea being that if you just assume that your partner is always doing everything they can to bring them their whole selves to a relationship, a lot of stuff changes. And their idea was there used to be 80-20 marriage where the woman did 20, 80% of the work and the man did 20% of the work. And that maybe is like our parents' generation. Then we graduated to a 50-50 marriage but it was all this scorekeeping. It's like, ah, you did the laundry last week. I'll do the laundry this week. You did the dishes. I did it. It's like you're keeping score. And it just like makes it very overwhelming and just it takes away some of the fun of a relationship. And then the 80-80 was like, if we just assume we're both doing 80, we don't need to keep track. Mm. And if you check in regularly enough to see if other people are feeling that that's not the case, you can address it then. But I don't know, that, that approach... We're not really like keeping track of who did which kid's bedtime, like who did too much of this, who's made too many dinners. Um, and then a lesson I got from a podcast that I did was we have all these systems in place for various professional things. Like, oh, I've got calendar reminders. Oh, I've got all these things. He was like, why can't you use those for other areas of your life? So if you want to remind yourself to do something really sweet for your significant other 
every three months, put a calendar reminder that says do something, do something sweet every three months. Uh, you know, sometimes you feel like you want it to be natural, but these systems exist because some natural things just are very hard for our brains to be wired for. So, um, I'm not, I'm not afraid to like make sure that if there's something I want to do, I'm not going to rely only on my own intuition to do it. If you want to wake up early three days a week to make your partner breakfast, well, just set an alarm. Like, you know, you know, you, that in that example, it probably seems so obvious to people. But if I said, if you wanted to remember to tell your partner something you really love about them every day, well, set an alarm uh, or a reminder at 9 p.m. that's like, tells your partner that, and if you haven't done it by that point, now you've got a reminder. Uh, that one probably seems weirder than setting an alarm to wake up, but they're kind of similar. And I think doing more of that so that you can be intentional if you're not always intentional in the moment because you're just distracted can help break through some of the noise. Dude, that's such a great hack. Well, because like if you look at your calendar right now, how what percentage of that is work-related stuff? And and I'm not I'm asking rhetorically, but it's like everyone listening, like that's a crazy thing when you're going to be known most for your relationships or the people, yeah. the people you love. And but does your calendar actually reflect that? It might reflect that in what you do, but not what you put down, which is a fascinating thing and something I've really never thought about before. Also, outside of just your relationship with a partner, I've got this address book in in my iPhone. You can have different lists. So I have a list and I call it walking calls. And it's basically like I've put like the, I don't know, 30 or 40 people that I like really want to maintain relationships for the rest of my life with. And whenever I'm just walking or driving, uh, I just go through it. I'm like, from A to Z, who haven't I talked to recently? And I'll just call them randomly. Uh, in this day and age, some people don't always pick up. But just yesterday, I called someone and they just picked up. We haven't talked in six months and we had a great conversation. Uh, so I, I, I want to try to make sure that I'm keeping all relationships that I want to have going. I remember at one point, my wife and I did this. Uh, we made this spreadsheet for all of our friends and we put them into like tiers. It was like, these are the people who we want to really make sure we see on a regular basis. And we talked about it with each other. It's like, is this a couple where like you actually also care about building a relationship? Or is this just a couple that like I should really just hang out with whichever one of the two I'm friends with and we don't need to make it like a couple thing. So we organized all of our friends, personal and uh, couple related. And we were like, let's take these six and like, let's make sure we really see them every so often. And let's take the next group and we'll make sure we see them every year. And then let's take the other group and every time we're doing like a big barbecue, let's make sure we invite them. But if we don't see them as often, it's not the end of the world. And like, I don't think most people take their relationship and like do that uh, at all. <laughs> I think that's probably pretty strange. Uh, but like, why not? Why don't we use all these tools? Like we're so focused on productivity and efficiency and work. And then we throw all those tools out. It's like, you know, when we go to our personal life and we just kind of treat it as a second class citizen. So I don't know. There, there's an app way back in the day called eTax. And I actually think the guy who started eTax ended up starting Airtable and it was much more successful. But eTax would sync with your phone bill. So it would like you'd, you'd basically give it the login to your AT&T or your Verizon site and it would go look at all of your call logs or your phone bills. You'd give it your OAuth to Gmail and you would give it, I don't remember. Yeah, I think those are the only two they supported. But what it would do is it would look at your phone logs back before iMessage when all text messages and phone calls showed up on Verizon. Now that we're using iMessage, those never show up on Verizon or AT&T, so it breaks everything. But it would say, here are all your contacts. 
here's the last time you texted, emailed, or called them. And so you could star them and be like, these are the people, I want you to remind me if I haven't talked to them in six months. I, went, I was like, this is so cool. Like it was such a cool personal CRM that no longer exists. Um, it would take a little bit more work to build that, but I would love to see something like that built. I actually have a bookmarked app. I will tell you after, we can put it in the show notes. I don't remember what it is, but it looks like it might do this, but I haven't played with it. Oh my God, my mind is blown. That is so, oh, that's amazing. So the first thing that that comes to mind is like, that's the Spotify wrapped version of your actual life. Like, who are you spending the most time with? Who are you caring about? Who are you calling? Who are you, like, we don't know. We genuinely have no clue who we're spending the most time with or who we even want to be spending the most time with. And it's likely because we don't have that first bucket of an easy way to tell who you've texted the most. Yeah. It's crazy. But it seems very, po- I'm like, Apple could probably tell me this. It's like, we know your phones were near each other. We, like, yeah. You know, except for the green bubbles. We probably, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're like, we don't know if you ever saw this person. Sorry. But uh, uh, but there, there's something there. And I would love to see more people spend the time they do to optimize their work calendar, mm. to optimize their life calendar and and see and be around the people they care about. So you are friends with some of the most fascinating humans in the world. And like you just – you how I found out about you was you interviewed Tim Ferriss and he posted on his feed. And then I think like I sent you a message about that and then like a month later, I'm on a call with you in some capacity. I'm like, what is going on? This was like late 2021. Um, and I've just noticed – your ability to give with no expectation, the amount of times you'll be like, yo, let's hop on the Zoom so that we can, you can, you can basically tell me a bunch of information about how to grow the podcast or, and I'm like, wow, this man seriously doing this out of the kindness of his own heart. And I appreciate it so much. And it helps explain why you've built such a tremendous network. Cause I assume you just do this to a bunch of different people who you like and respect and different assets. So what other things do you think have contributed to the incredible network that you've built? I think, I mean, one, I'm just like nerdily obsessed with certain things that people seem to want to know about. So like when it comes to credit card points, miles, travel hacks, like everybody wants a deal. Like it doesn't matter how much money you have or how little money, like everyone wants a deal. And I remember one time I was like just talking about some of the stupid hacks in life, like the dumbest things ever. And a friend of mine who has orders of magnitude more money than me, what, like text me and he's like, hey, I ran out of salt. Look at this. And he's like, he p- took like eight salt packets from Whole Foods on the way home from like, he like where you like prepared food things. He's like, I got some free salt from Whole Foods. Like it, <laughs> he was like giddy about it. Like it didn't matter in his life at all, but it was like kind of a cool. Like, so I think everyone likes to feel like they got a deal. Mm-hmm. Everyone likes to feel like they got something for free. They got something no one else has access to. And like, I feel like I peddle in in deals like that's like my my thing i'm like always the person that you know finds these weird hacks and optimizations about anything and so i think that someone once said like you're just the person that everyone wants to have around in case like i don't know they go to jail they like they, they need something i've definitely been the like phone call from from jail once you uh, have i have what was that uh without revealing details if you can uh it was a friend of my one of my best friends was dating someone who, this is going to sound like a crazy story in, in, in this, this day and age, but um, in the South, this person, uh, my friend, ha- kept a locked firearm in his car. And his girlfriend wanted to borrow the car, 
to go to Washington, D.C., where you can't have firearms in Washington, D.C. So she takes, and they lived in Virginia at the time. So she's like, I don't want to go into Virginia with my boyfriend's gun. Like, that's not the cool thing. So she takes it out of the government compartment, puts it in a bag, goes inside, sets it inside, goes off for the night, has a good time, comes home, goes to sleep. The next morning, she goes to work. She works in the Capitol, and she forgot that that gun was in her purse. Oh, my so God. So she goes through the metal detector, and they're like, there's a gun. And she's like, oh, my God. At that moment, she's like, I, like, I think if you're listening to this, you, you either have a reaction of like, I could actually see how that could possibly happen or like, why would anyone have guns? This is not a conversation about why someone should or shouldn't have a gun. <laughs> this is a conversation about someone made that happen. And it was a mess because it was a Friday afternoon. Like, there's no like arguing at the Capitol. Like, oh, it wasn't mine. Could I just like take it home and drop it off? It was like, you're straight going to DC Central Prison right now. Uh, and so she was in lockup. And my friend at the time was in the Middle East for work. And so he... he her boyfriend was call one, and then he he deferred. He's like, call Chris. I can't. I'm like, I'm so far away. I can't even deal with this. I'm sorry. I don't know what I could do. The time zones are off. Like, what did, advice did you give her? Uh, so we ended up finding an attorney whose husband was the DA and hiring her, and even she couldn't actually get her out until Monday, but she could find a way. She happened to be like a very tall, thin, beautiful woman. And like, that was not an ideal scenario. Like she was definitely like, a, like it was, she was, she was not having a good time for the first few hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she did have a couple uh, real medical concerns that were able to get her in like, at least an isolated area uh, for the weekend. Damn. And then she, she stayed in the, for the weekend. In prison? Yeah, yeah. Cause they couldn't really process anything. It was like five o'clock on a Friday. By the time we act like it took hour, it was Friday morning when she got to work. But by the time this all made it to me, we found a person, we tried to solve it. Holy it was just like, can't do anything. She was out on Monday. And, you know, then I passed it on. I was like, you should work with this person. She knows what she's doing. And, you know, now I think she has like a misdemeanor on her record, but she has done so many awesome things since then and it hasn't affected her career, which is great. Well, what's fascinating to me is the research process. Like the reason why you're the one called is because you of your research and your ability to learn new things quickly. Yes. So what do you do in that situation to research the most effective person to help the person in jail? And if that example doesn't play, maybe like use an example of the amazing research you did and how you went about doing that research. It's funny because I'm working on a book and this is like part of the book is it, all the things we talked about are part of it. One of the, it's like about principles of an optimized life. One of them is building allies, which is like actually building these people who can help you make decisions faster. One is about when to stop optimizing. One of them is about, you know, actually doing the homework. And mm-hmm. I think there's two things and and one of them is a really important part and it's not about the research, but it's about structuring how you're going to do the research because I think if right before you start doing research, and this can be as simple as like make a spreadsheet, like it doesn't have to be fancy, but it's like right before you're about to do the research, think about how you want to store the research you find. And it will lead you to think about questions you might want to ask because there's maybe more information you might want to have. So, uh, you know, in this particular case, I'd say, okay, we're going to find attorneys, right? Like we need to find out what areas they specialize in, like what's their availability, get their phone number so we could call them and ask them a few questions. And then it was like, okay, let's text some people in DC, explain the situation. Uh, let's do some searching online. Let, you know, it's not, there's nothing that secretive. It was just, let's like structure it and operate quickly. 
So the quickly is like, I love keyboard shortcuts and like all that kind of stuff and use Alfred, which is like a Mac app to be more productive. Like that just lets me do it faster. But at the end of the day, no matter what kind of information you're gathering uh, or research you're doing, if you structure it in advance, it saves so much time. Mm. So I'll give a silly example, which is we're researching swim classes for our two-year-old. And when you want to research swim classes, one way you could do it is just search oh, swim classes in the Bay Area. Then you find some sites, you read about them, you have some ideas, maybe you send a link to your partner, you're like, what do you think of this one? And now all of a sudden you spent 30 minutes and you went to a bunch of websites, you have little ideas, and now you're like, okay, what do we want to do? Oh, well, that one, you're like, you're trying to remember which one you liked. Well, instead, I was like, let's just make a quick table. And it's like, where is it? What days are the classes on? How much do they cost? Like, what ages are the classes for? And if you are doing research and you realize you missed a call, great, 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 add it. Mm -hmm. So then we just did the same research in the same amount of time. In fact, it was probably faster because we decided what we were looking for. So it was like open website. It's like, what is the Yelp score of this place? Where is it located? What days does it happen? What age for the, what ages of the kids? Our daughter at the time was like two. It's like, if it was a class for 12 to 24 month olds, it might be, you know, depending on how advanced your child is, you might be like, well, I don't want her to be the oldest person in this class. Like she's already pretty comfortable in the water. I'd rather find one that's like 24 to 36. Uh, so we fill all this out and now it's like, oh, we should go to these two. But the average person that doesn't do that is now spending 30 minutes researching swim classes and at the end doesn't really have anything to show for it other than like a gut instinct. Mm. And I don't say don't trust your gut. Like my general belief for maximizing is collect all this information lean on other people that are experts or no, more knowledgeable than you to give advice and then like walk away from all the optimization and try to pick the thing that feels the best. So I don't actually think you need the data to tell you what's best. You need the data to give you the information so your gut can tell you what's best. That's how I feel like I've made the best decisions. I'm like, I know I collected the right information, but I relied on myself to make the decision. In that whole piece though, there were so many different, the variables of the columns like are important questions that I think people don't often ask themselves yeah. about. So like when you look at a problem or when you look at that specific problem, like how do you figure out the variables to make those columns? I don't know. It's like being infinitely curious. I'm like looking at this website. I'm like a very curious person. I'm like, oh, this is the ages of the class. Oh, these classes have different ages. And then I just ask, well, why would they have different ages? Oh, well, maybe that's like what kind of class they are. We were looking at gymnastics class. It's like, oh, it turns out the ones that have younger kids in them, the wider the range and the younger the floor of the age, the more likely these classes are to require the parent to be there with the kids. So if you have a class that's like six months old to two, it's probably a parents and kids class. But if it's two to five, it's probably a, no, like, so just mm. being kind of curious and asking the questions and trying to, I don't I don't have like a perfect answer. It's like, I'm not throwing it into JatGPT right now uh, and be like, what should I ask of swim instructors? Maybe that's a good idea, but um, I don't know. I'm just looking at what's different between things and trying to ask myself, why is it different? Well, I think that's part of your charm and what has helped build such an incredible network for you as well is you're curious and people want to be around <clears throat> curious people. And I mean, like, that's what I found from doing this podcast because we're always interested in the world. But it's interesting how curiosity at one point seemed like a, a negative trait in the world. Like, let's say maybe in the 1500s or 1600s, if you, if you think and are curious about the way things are, that could get you killed. But today we live in a world where curiosity is actually the most beneficial thing because it helps you learn and iterate faster. 
I think it's true, but I still think there's a tremendous amount of pressure to just like do things the way that they've always been done or the way you think they're done. Mm. Um, I think my, like the, I, when I, I'm working on the proposal for this book, so it's very top of mind. And the opening thing is like question assumptions of, or question like common norms and questions of status quo. So I think that I can't tell you the number of people that I know that think that renting is throwing away money. Mm. It is a very common, like I would say it's one of the most common things that I've heard someone say is like, I don't, I want to buy a home. Why? Well, I don't want to throw away money on rent. It's like, well, guess what? I own a home and I throw away money all the time. I throw away on property tax. I throw away on insurance. I, like there's all these things you throw away money on mortgage interest. I'm throwing money to the bank to be able to give me the loan because most people couldn't afford to buy the house with cash. And if you buy the house with cash, then your money's not earning anything. It's even worse. So, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of these things. Ramit Sethi calls them like hidden scripts mm. that have just like per, been pervasive in our world, um, like common rules of thumb that are just not always accurate. And I don't think people by default question assumptions. I, much to my detriment, would question everything. Teacher says a thing. I'm like, are you sure that's the right thing? I, like it drove people crazy. But I would question every assumption. Everything anyone would tell me, I'd be like, are you sure? And to the point that sometimes it drives my wife crazy because she'll be like, I think this. And then I'll question it. And then she'll be like, fine, I see your side. And now she'll be on the other side. And then I'll start questioning it again. <laughs> and she's like, wait, you were just telling me why it couldn't work that way. And now I'm telling you, I agree. And now you're trying to go back to the old way. I'm like, I'm not trying to go back to any way. I'm just trying to question all the assumptions to try to get to the right outcome. And I think by default, I assume that if someone's telling me something, it might not be true. And I think a lot of people assume, oh, this person's older. They know the answer. It's like, well, maybe they don't know the answer. Maybe things have changed. Maybe the world's different. Maybe where we are is different from where they were. Maybe it's different in this industry than that industry. So I think sometimes to my, you know, relationship with teacher detriment, I just am always questioning assumptions, my childhood and now. But I think that probably helps me come up with all kinds of crazy amounts of unique perspectives and optimizations and hacks and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, it probably drives lots of people crazy, but I feel like I get to better outcomes. What are the book proposal hacks that you've uncovered and what have you questioned from doing the book proposal process that has been unexpected? So I think the biggest thing that I learned, I worked with this woman, uh, and her name's Sarah Stibbets. You can look her up. She's amazing. And the thing I worked with her on was something that I never even knew was a thing you could hire someone for. So my challenge was, I knew lots of things about me. I've known for a long time that I love doing X and Y and Z and optimizing this, and doing deep dives and doing research and all this stuff. But I didn't have like, what is my unique perspective on the world that would make for an interesting book? I had people being like, we think you should write a book. Like a book agent's like, we think you need to write a book. And I was like, well, what's a book about? And they're like, well, you're just so different. Like if people could learn your way of doing things, I feel like they would be happier. And I was like, I know, but how do you articulate what my way of doing things is? And so Sarah basically started helping people write books. And then she was like, well, actually, I'm gonna help them write proposals. And then she's like, well, actually, I'm gonna help them figure out their thing. So it's like, whether it's six principles or seven steps or like three tenants, like whatever it is, like everyone probably has a thing that they could be the expert or the author about, but actually figuring out a way to articulate it into some number of steps, principles, one big idea, a theme, 
you know, whatever it is, I think that's really hard. And so I think the biggest unlock for me was I worked with her and, you know, spent a few thousand dollars for her coaching help to come up with what that thing was, which ended up being, we're not finalized on the number, but let's say like five to seven principles of living a really optimized and happy life. Wow. I think it might've been you talking to Derek Sivers about how we go around life and we don't know about ourselves. And I was like, oh my God, that is so true. Like I, I remember like in the past few weeks, my one of my friends said to me like, Danny, you're really intense. And I'm like, I am? Like, I didn't know that. Like, and And so I think that getting better at understanding ourselves and what makes us uniquely ourselves is perhaps one of the most important things we'll ever do. How do we get better at that process? Maybe I'll have Sarah on the podcast to ask her. Um, so a friend of mine did an anonymous survey amongst his like 20 closest friends and had actually a facilitator for it. So it could be written or a phone call. Mm. And so he hired someone. You could do this with a Google form. Like there's the the cheap version and the super expensive version. But you know he had more money than I did. And he was like, he hired someone to call and say, hey, so-and-so wants to get better at life, wants to understand his perspective, wants to understand where he's a good friend, where he could improve, what habits he has, like who he is. And we sat down and we talked for like 30 or 40 minutes with this facilitator and she had questions. And then she prepared a report that was all anonymized and gave it back to him. Wow. And he used that to be like, oh, now I know a lot more about who I am, where I'm falling short with my friendships, with my relationships, all kinds of stuff. So you could literally send a Google form, mark the do not collect email, do not anything, that just says like, where, where, you know, do I bring value to your life? Where am I a drag? Like, what, you know, it's, it's funny. We have all these frameworks for products. I can't remember what it is, but if there's this, this like thing of like, do you keep going with this product? Like a SWOT analysis, you know, like your yeah. strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Like you can apply again, all the principles of business and everything to your own life. You know, you could do your customer research. You could go, like, it's just so funny that we have all the frameworks for doing all of the things we want to do for business and we just don't apply them to our lives. So why not? Why not run customer research on your relationships and ask them like the SWAT style questions and then come up with like, what is my marketing plan for who I want to be as a person? Like you could do all these things. No one thinks to do them. It takes time. You have to prioritize it. But I would challenge everyone listening to go make a Google form and just send it to like your 20 closest friends. Don't make it too much work at the out the gate and just ask three or four questions that you really want to know the answer to. Like, where are you a great friend? Where where could you be a better friend? Like, who what what makes you uniquely you? Mm. Um, I find that sometimes one of the best questions to ask on product the product side because I spent a lot of my t- years building products is like, how would you describe this product to a friend? Mm. I would love for everyone to ask their closest friends, how would you describe my personality to a friend? How would you describe what I'm best at? How would you describe what I'm worst at? Like that kind of language. Where have you seen me at my best? Yeah. Like send that to 10, 20 people and say, look, I this will be completely anonymous. I'll show you the setting. I'll show you. You can show them whatever they need because I think people will be a little apprehensive. But Google Forms makes it really clear. It's like your email will not be shared. Be like, go to use a library computer. I don't care what, like do whatever you want to feel good about this. Um, but I would love you to spend some time on this. I think people will gladly do it because they're like, wow, this person's trying to improve. Like people want to be champions of development. And so I don't know. I think people, more people should be doing things like that. Have you done it before? I've done a, a 
not as in-depth version of asking people this. Part of the book, I was like asking lots of people, like, how would you describe what I'm good at? I was try. I did this. I didn't do it as anonymous because I. It was. It had a purpose that I think people were able to look past. But I did it in that perspective to try to understand, like, who am I? What am I good at? When I was trying to start start the podcast, it started as a parenting podcast. So crazy. Uh. And because I, I was like optimizing parenting and I was like, oh, most people don't optimize parenting like I do. Why don't I make a podcast about it? I didn't realize that the thing that I loved was actually the optimizing, not the optimizing parenting. How long did it take you to realize that? I didn't even record an episode. Wow. Um, I bought the mic. I made a list of like 20 people I could interview. I came up with ideas for a title and then the baby was born. And then I was like, I after you have the baby, I've already used all the optimization and then I was like, oh, we've already optimized it all. I was like, I don't actually love the the art of parenting to the degree I loved the art of optimizing a thing. So after I finished optimizing getting ready for a baby to come, I was like, oh, like that's obviously not the podcast. Like, <laughs> the podcast must be something else. And it, the, the podcast ended up being like, how do you upgrade and optimize your life, your money, your travel, and all of it. So we know how long it took, nine months. Yeah. <laughs> Nine months for you to realize. Well, it takes a few months before you realize you're having the kids. It's like, well, we did IVF, so we really had the full time. Um, so at least nine months. But uh, yeah, I think it took a lot of asking myself, like, what is the thing I really care about, I'm good at? If you go look, actually, funny funny, I'm bringing this up today. Up until today, if you went to my, my website, you'd see a couple articles I wrote in 2014, um, 2017. Like, I've tried to put content out in the world about the things I love and it just never clicked until I found a podcast. Mm. So I wrote an article in 2017 about like, what's the best credit card? I wrote an article about getting a discount on a Peloton, but those things, like I just never kept it up. And something about the format of podcasting, something about committing to it coming out on a certain day. I think honestly, one of the best things to happen to my podcasting journey was that I did all this research about what the best day to release an episode was. And it was like, it was either on like Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday morning. And you wanna release it at like 2 a.m. Pacific because you wanna start the analytics for the day before anyone listens to it. And at like 2 a.m. Pacific, no one in America is likely to be listening. So if you, you know, even if you're, maybe some people that are up really late in Hawaii, but you know, after 5 a.m. Eastern, people start listening. Before like midnight Pacific, people are still listening. So that was the right time. So I was like, okay, Wednesday, 2 a.m., podcast comes out every week. Well, once I picked that date, I was like, well, I have to come out the next Wednesday. I can't miss it. Whereas when I wrote a blog post, I didn't spend any time thinking about when to release it. So I didn't have a cadence or a schedule. And so I didn't have anything to stick to. So I think by doing enough optimization on when to come out, it forced me to have a schedule. It forced me to keep going. And then I had a rhythm and it's been like that for, I don't know, 120 episodes. It's amazing. And well, you mentioned the the early writings and I stumbled across a blog post you wrote about your grandpa in 2014. One, 2014. Yeah. Life lessons from granddad, which exists. If anyone's like, you know, looking Links for below. It, it, it exists on the all the hacks blog, which okay. is all the hacks.com slash blog, which has no link to it. Um, I'm working to resolve a, a Cloudflare uh, proxy issue, which is making all the posts hide. But uh Stay tuned. It's on Medium too, it, but, but it, we will you not. You can't find it. Will oh, you? you can find it. I'll explain later. <laughs> it's not relevant to people listening, but I moved where my domains were all this morning. Yeah, it's it's funny because you're just like, you're so 
tied in with the technical, but you're personable enough, like extremely so that you can you can mix both worlds of like the computer science speak of the proxies, at which are like, what the hell is he talking about? But you're also like able to connect deeply with human beings, which is like a very rare skill set, I feel. It's funny because this is a little bit of a tangent, but my uh, my in-laws, there was a lot of bow hunting in the family. And it was always funny because one time I went on a bow hunting trip with them. And I always joked that I went bow hunting. You know, it's like bow hunting is very different. You know, you're like full camo, you're up in a tree. And I, I remember going there and I'm like, came back to the Bay Area and I was talking about this. And I was like, everyone that I knew in the Bay Area thought I was like Bear Grylls, like this commando in the woods. And then I go hang out with my in-laws and like to them, I'm like geek squad. Of course. You know, like. I'm like, hey, guys, can you teach me how to go bow hunting? Like, I don't know anything, but I'm down to do it. And they like the the thing they love is like, you're always willing to do anything. Um, But I played that role where like in one group, I was like the most crazy adventurer. And in the other group, I was like the computer nerd, (laughs) you know, like, so I don't know. I think people just need to own that there are a lot of areas they won't be great at and who cares and just kind of like go and experience life and have amazing experiences and be comfortable with that I think if you're really comfortable with who you are, it's like you know, you could just go into any scenario. So maybe that's what's made it really easy for me. And I'm just like very technically curious. So mm-hmm. like I love math. Like when I was in college, I took all these minors in math and French and um, finance and everything, just because I was super curious about learning all the things. Well, why would you start driving Lyft? Oh, uh, so my wife worked at Lyft for ten years, and. There are two reasons I started driving for Lyft. One, I was like, you you basically created this company. Like she joined before Lyft was created. It was called Zimride. Wow. Um, and she was like on the early team. She was, she was there before Lyft was even a thing. And so part of me was like, I just felt so connected to this company. I introduced her to John and Logan, the founders, before they started Lyft. Um, like I just, you know, I, I like I felt very connected to this company. And so I was like, I just want to be more a part of it. So that's part of it. The other part was that I feel like it's very hard for people to value their time. And so I know so many people that end up doing things and they say, oh, that was a total waste of time. And I was like, well, was it? Was it not? So the interesting thing that we now have with this like shared sharing economy, you can go be a Lyft driver, a Uber Eats delivery person, was that it allows you to instantaneously monetize your time. And I thought it was such a powerful lesson, which is if I have a car and I'm registered for Lyft, I can, in a moment's notice, turn it on and go make whatever the rate is. Let's call it, for the sake of argument, $20 an hour. So it's like, now I know that if what I'm doing, if I could make more than $20, well, it's great, you know, it's better than that other use of time. But if it's not, like, that's the trade-off. So if I, I remember, you know, you're, I'm on, I've done this notoriously, mostly out of curiosity, to be clear. But it's like, let's price out, you know, Instacart or Amazon Fresh or Whole Foods and like, which one's going to be the better overall price. I still do that sometimes, but it's less because I want to save the $8. It's because it's like content for my audience. Because I'm like, I want to tell you which one actually is the cheapest and like why you should never use Instacart, for example. Um, And so I still kind of do it. But if you're looking here and you're like, wow, I can save $2. Oh, should I go recreate my entire cart in another grocery app so I could save $4? Well, it's going to take like 15, 20 minutes. It's like, well, if I literally got in my car for 15 or 20 minutes, I'd go make $10. Well, now I've established that I have this rate and like I should not do things at that rate because I actually have a way to monetize it. Before that, you could say, well, 
I make this much a year. Let's divide it by the number of hours I work. And you could say, oh, my hourly rate's 30 bucks an hour. But you can't just work more hours. Like that's not how most jobs in America work. But with these other things, you now have a way to say, if I want to work one hour, I can go work one hour and I can make money. So now you have a floor of your time should always be worth more than that. So if you have to pay, you know, let's take a great example. I despise the fact that, you know, Uber Eats charges more for items. So like our favorite sushi place, a roll, if you order it direct from them, where you can only pick it up in store is like $17, but from Uber Eats, it's $21. Mm. And I'm like, I hate that Uber Eats charges four more dollars. But the amount of time it's going to take me to drive to the sushi place and drive home is maybe 30 minutes. And so if I'm really only going to end up paying like an extra $12, $15, it's actually not worth it. And like if I'm going to spend that 30 minutes, I would be better spending that 30 minutes driving for Lyft, making $20, you know, whatever the number is. So mm. if you've established what your time actually could be worth, if you did something, I think it just changes your perspective when you're making trade-offs and it makes it easy for you to spend money. Now, don't go spend all the money because your time's worth a lot if you're not actually going to <laughs> just back it up, right? Like, uh, but I don't know. It's, it's very hard for people to value their time. And I think this gives you a concrete way to do it. Was there a time in your life where it would be unheard of to spend more on the sushi? And oh. and how how did you like fifteen years like every year up until two years ago? I don't know. Like... <laughs> but but up until two years ago, I assume that you were in a financial position where you could afford it. I think that that question is so deeply emotional and psychological. They like, yeah. can you afford something? It's like, well, I don't like that. That doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have. Yeah. Um, I have friends who have much less money than me that can afford things that I feel like I can't afford. And then I have people, friends that have more money than me who can't afford things I can't afford. Yeah. Like it's, it's, there's just so much there. Ramit Sethi has this great podcast where you can go listen to couples talking about money and like go deep on the way they are. And I think you will learn a lot. His Netflix show where he does the same thing. There are people that are like either struggling to spend. We all have a friend who spends money more than we do. And we're like, how is this person able to go buy a Gucci bag mm. when like they're making $25,000 a year? Well, one argument could be that's the thing that they choose to live, spend their money on. And if that's the thing they want to spend lavishly on and they cut everywhere else, fine. One could be that they're just terrible with money. You know, like, there's a lot of things that go into that question. Um, I've always had a scarcity mindset with money where I think, I don't know where it started. I have a hypothesis that when I came out of college, I had a couple jobs. I didn't love those jobs. And I, I think I was like three jobs in and I was like, wow, maybe I don't enjoy working. Because, you know, for the majority of us, like we haven't, it's not like we get a chance to do every job in the world. So I'm three in and I'm like, I didn't like, I'm 0 for 3. So am I 0 for 3 because I just found the wrong three? Or am I 0 for 3 because I just don't like working? I don't know. Uh, but if I'm 0 for 3, I really need to figure out how to not do this. Because I can't, I can't do this for the next 50 years. So I think I got really aggressive about saving money. So every dollar I spent was a dollar that I would have to make, which was a dollar I'd have to make doing something I didn't enjoy doing. So I was like, I want to be really aggressive. Now, I still didn't want to stop doing cool stuff. So like I figured out the optimization game, the points game, like how do you travel the world for free? How do you, that was a big piece of it. Um, but eventually I found things I liked doing, but it was, it took a while to like get rid of that natural tendency to be like, let's save everything. 
and slowly over time, I got better at it. So do you think that if you had loved the first job out of out of the gate that you wouldn't have optimized or you wouldn't have wanted to save as much as you did? I think that if I knew I loved the thing I was doing, it would have been easier to spend money because now I love the thing I'm doing and it's easier to spend money. And as I look over the years, as I started realizing, I have friends that basically think they can always make money. I have a friend who's like, his attitude is I will always be able to make money. And he turns to me once and he's like, dude, you, you've been able to do that for 15 years. For 15 years, you've always been able to make money. What makes you think anything differently? And I think the main difference was that he enjoyed the art of doing that and I didn't. Like I didn't enjoy going to work at a job I didn't enjoy. Like he enjoy, he would find a way, my wife's similar. Even if she's in a job that she doesn't love, she's much better than me at finding a way to take a piece of that job that she can turn into a challenge. I can, do th- I can optimize things people would never want to spend time on and I can enjoy it. But I couldn't do that with jobs I didn't enjoy. Like it just, that wasn't me. And so I was like, I got to save money because I don't want to do this. So, but once I was like, oh, I, I kind of like working. Well, okay, if you kind of like working, your financial model, like if you try to go project your financial model for the rest of your life, it's like, here's how much money you're going to make. Here's how much your savings is going to grow. And here's how much you're going to spend. Let's just use those three variables. Forget about inflation and all this stuff. Well, if the income is zero, the chart, unless you have a huge pool of savings to grow each year, it's going to go down. So like you need to make money and you want to be happy. And those things felt like they were in conflict. And as soon as they weren't, I was like, oh, well, now that I can make money, well, then it's kind of okay to spend it. Like what's it? That's what it's for. I, I did an episode with Bill Perkins that if you're going to go listen to one episode I've done, I think it's one of the best. I loved it. And the whole idea is like, what is this money for? Like wh- the money is for maximizing our net fulfillment, not our net worth. And after that episode, I was like, why do I care about growing my net worth? I literally don't, I have no interest in growing my net worth beyond whatever level like allows me to maximize my net fulfillment. And at this point in life, we have two kids, like there's a lot going on. I've got company. Why am I not spending more money? Um, If I have it, right? You don't want to spend beyond your means, but why save more so that, I don't know, when I'm retired, I have all this money, but my body, hopefully it's better. You got Tia's book over here, you know, trying to to see if we can outlive ourselves. But, uh, uh, you know, I think if we... If we can't, uh, if we, there are things we can't do. I look at my parents and they just can't do all the things that they could do 20 years ago. Like that's just the reality of mortality. And so if, if we know that to be true, then why are we saving all our money for that point? Like, I'm not saying we all do, but statistically most people end up spending less in retirement than they thought. Mm. Uh, at least I think that was one of the takeaways from Bill's book. Don't, don't necessarily quote me on it, but uh, I think retirement ends up costing less than people think. And I think people forget that when you stop working, you get creative and find ways to make money. That's the crazy thing. Like every person I know in the fire movement, the financial independence, retire early, like they all stop working. They say, they're like, I saved enough money. I don't have to work. And then when they're not working, they're like, oh, I found a couple cool things I'm really passionate about. It's like, oh, it turns out when you're really passionate about something, you give it so much energy that it ends up turning into something really cool. And so I would almost argue you'd be better off saving enough money that you can stop working for a couple of years and stop work for a couple of years and then go do whatever you want. And then you might find that you can generate even more money and then you're in a much better place um, than just trying to save enough that you could stop working forever. Because I don't know, I, I was deep in the fire movement and I was like, that was the path. And then I got to the point that I was like, oh, actually, I, enjoy, I, I can enjoy work. 
It's like the, the fire boomin is great for people who hate their job. It's irrelevant for people who love their work. When did you first find work that you loved? It's funny. I, I've gone through a few stints. So when I started my first company uh, with a few people called Milk, there were a handful of us. We started this incubator. I loved it, but it didn't work. Like we were trying to come up with like some cool mobile apps. It was like a really strong team, but we never landed on a product that worked. And we sold the company to Google because we built an awesome team. And then at Google, uh, I went to venture capital and I really liked it. Like I was like, I like this job. But then it got to the point that, you know, in any career you want to move up to do different things. I was like, I, I like doing more interesting deals. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I have, I didn't feel at the time, this is completely wrong for anyone raising money. But at the time I was like, how could I be an investor to people building companies if I've never done that myself? Turns out they're like the best venture capitalists that have, you know, made the most successful bets. They're much more like data-driven financial people than they are founders. But that's what I thought at the time. So I was like, ah. So I was happy for a bit and then I wasn't. And then when I started my next company, I loved it. It was awesome. We were like working on financial planning, helping people be more responsible with money. But like the business model didn't work. So like I was like, oh, I found a job. I love it. I, I, I found the thing that works. But like the company didn't work. So, you know, you, you, I was a little held back there. At Wealthfront, I love building products. I think it's hard for a lot of people who've been founders to just have a job, but I didn't really care. Like I just wanted to build cool stuff. And if I have a boss, fine. If I have two bosses or three bosses, fine. It didn't matter. Um, so that was great. Like I enjoyed that. And then I started the podcast on the side because I just wanted to share stuff that I wasn't able to share during the pandemic. And then I just was like, well, this is, I should do this. Like I'm making more money on this than I am on my job and I love it. Let's go do that full time. And now I'm like, I love everything I'm doing. Uh, I want it to be like a family thing. I like my wife, I want her to come in. I want her to work on all this. Maybe by the time this comes out, I'll have convinced her to do that. Um, but like we both love this whole thing and I don't know. It, I feel lucky to do the thing I love, but more lucky that it impacts a lot of people's lives. Well, and also you're really good at it too, which helps. You're, you have an amazing voice. You're really curious, and you're. What's cool is you're not you're not scared to try different things and play around with it. And I think one is just your natural disposition of doing that leads to that outcome. But also, it's like your years of experience of like, all right, I have all these friends, and I've I've seen all the ways in which podcasts can go, and it's really remarkable to to watch it unfold in the way it is because something tells me that what it is today is not what it's going to be in 200 episodes. And I don't mean that from the listenership or just the listenership. I mean that also in the sense of like the content because of how you're willing to go from avenue to avenue and test out different things. I don't think I've ever said this out loud or thought it, but now I am. Um, I always ask myself, like, gosh, how did I not find this 10 years ago? Right? Like I, it's like, I've, all, I've been this person for at least 10 years, and it took me 10 years to figure out that there this area was here. But I'm just thinking out loud. I've said that before, but I've never thought deeper to the level that you just you know kind of inspired me to think, which is I'm not sure I would have been able to do what it is now had I done it 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of my other favorite episodes is with a guy named Arthur Brooks. And he's a writer, and he wrote writes about happiness. And he wrote this book from strength to strength. And when I first read the title, I was like, is this book for really old people? Because it was like, you know, finding happiness in the second half of life. And I was like, oh, this seems like a depressing book for like, for like my parents. But I don't even know if they'd want to read it because it sounds so like it was an amazing book. And the biggest takeaway I have 
is that there are two types of intelligence, fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And we all have these types of intelligence and they're two curves effectively. And when we're younger, we're on the fluid intelligence curve mm -hmm. and like everything's moving fast. We can work hard. And then we don't, we don't have all of this intelligence built up, but as we get older, and I don't say this as themes, like this is a science thing, but then we, we start to build up in our like late thirties and forties, our crystallized intelligence, which allows us to be much better at managing people and spotting trends, but we just can't grind it out like we could because our fluid intelligence curve is dropping. Mm. And so we had this great conversation about this that Arthur can articulate much better. Like I could ask questions about it. You can go listen to them. But uh, I think that conversation really made me realize that as we grow in our careers and our lives, the things that we once did and found joy in and could do like might not be the same. And I think leaning on a lot of the knowledge and experience I've had the last 20 years is maybe what makes the podcast work. And if I had found it 10 years ago, aside from podcasting being much smaller, like not impossible, but it might not have worked. Um, and so I encourage people, especially as you kind of hit that like mid thirties mark to understand that because if you try, and there are people who did this, I think it was, um, I think Mozart and Darwin. Mm. So Darwin uh, never jumped from the fluid intelligence curve to the crystallized intelligence curve. And so he was always trying to be the best scientist, but he just like, there were younger, brighter scientists doing more new things and he just couldn't keep up and he died completely unhappy. Uh, and then Mozart was like, you know what? Everyone around me is doing all this cool stuff and I can't keep up. I'm going to teach the old cool stuff that I know best that I'm known for. And he was a teacher and he taught he, like lessons about whatever. I'm not good at music. So it's whatever classical Baroque, whatever, whatever Mozart was like known for. It might have you. I might. Now I'm pretty sure it's Mozart, but there's a chance <laughs> I'm wrong here. Uh, but it's the idea of it. It's the idea of it and died incredibly happy. Um, teaching other people about this thing that he knew so well that other people were really excited to learn. Mm. And so you have to realize that you just can't be the same operator in the same way for the whole your whole life. And if you can figure that out, you can really unlock happiness amongst a bunch of other things that we talk about in that episode that you need to figure out in life. But that's a big one. Well, I can't wait to listen to that. But also it points to the idea that when you're teaching something, you have the most joy of it and you feel so much joy but when you're young, you often don't get the opportunity to teach because you don't know what to teach. And you don't know, okay, let me devote my time to this avenue or that avenue. But when you've built up that expertise, which you have, it, it leads to you to be able to teach it, which gives you joy. So I think it's something that I didn't realize earlier in life. Like I tried to start a blog on time management when I was 13 years old and how to be happy. And it's like, I just didn't know, and I probably still don't today have enough life experience to actually teach that successfully, hence why I bring on parents and people who have lived more so that they can help teach it. But I hope one day to be in that position as well. Well, let, let me give an example or not, or a suggestion for people listening. Um, this is what I did when I started podcasting. So I did this episode with Tim and I learned a little bit and then I, I'd probably talked to 10 or 15 people. I was very curious. I was like, why are most podcasters not treating their podcasts like businesses? Why are they not? Like when I was in a startup, like, I, you know, my career prior to podcasting is all venture-backed startups. The entire thing was like, how do you optimize all these aspects of the company? How do you grow faster? And I got to podcast and it's like, people never even thought about their podcast as a business. They were like, yeah, we just hired somebody to make us some money on sponsors. I was like, well, why aren't you doing this? Why are you doing this? Like, it blew my mind. And so I started asking every person I could 
what I could learn from them, which is fine. But the thing that made everything 10 times more valuable is that every time I learned something, I would store it somewhere. It doesn't matter. You store it on a notebook, you store it in a Google Doc. But then I put together this presentation of like all the things I'd learned. And anyone could do this at any level. You could say, here's the thing I'm interested in. I'm gonna go talk to 20 people and I'm going to learn all the smartest things. Well, once you've learned them, start sharing them amongst those people. Because chances are, every single one of those people didn't know all the 20 things you learned. So I went back to the 20 and I said, here's something I put together of everything I've learned from everyone. Even better if I had the foresight to tell them in advance, hey, I'm talking to the 20, you, you know, I'm gonna go talk to the 20 best people I can find on podcast growth. I'd love to get your thoughts and then I'm going to deliver you what I found to be the most valuable from all 20 conversations. So I did that. Now this little private video, which is not public, like it's not something I put on YouTube or anything, it keeps getting passed around in various weird circles. And so I got an email from the guy who runs Colossus, which is a podcast group that has Invest With The Best. And one of the podcasts they started is called Making Media. And this podcast came out a couple weeks ago and I was on it. But the whole reason that happened is that David Senra, who runs the Founders Podcast, sent them this video that they watched that was me just explaining everything I'd learned from optimizing podcasts. They were like, we gotta talk to this guy. Right? Like, and I could have done all that before I even started the podcast. Maybe I needed a little bit of hands-on like tweaking to understand the implementation. But when you're going to learn things, and this is like another part of the book, like when you're going to learn things, make sure that you realize that everything you're learning could be valuable to other people. And so you started this off talking about giving backs, talk about, you know, sharing everything. I wouldn't say it's like 100% selfless. Like I, I would share something with no expectation of anything in return. That is totally true. But I found that the more you give back, the more serendipity happens and all kinds of interesting stuff happens in the future. Someone might email me and be like, oh, you know so much about podcasting. Do you want to come give this talk at this place? Do you want to come help us here? I have a consulting client about podcasting because someone found this video. Um, and none of that would have happened if I were trying to get clients. Like it just would, it was just, it just wouldn't work. Like all I was trying to do was make sure that I could learn everything I could about podcast optimization and growth and just share it with people. Because I think if there's one thing I learned in Silicon Valley that is like the ideas don't matter. Like it's all about the execution. So, you know, I always would meet, meet people would email me back. Like, I have a startup idea. Will you sign an NDA? I'm like, I don't sign. No venture capitalist signs an NDA. Like they don't care. Like if you think that your idea is so special that like, that's what's going to say, like, no, it's about execution. So I don't care about the information. If I've learned the 20 best ways to grow podcasts, I'm happy to share them with everyone. Um, you know, like I want other people to grow their podcasts. The, the whole ecosystem, it's still, most people don't listen to podcasts. I think the majority of people don't listen to podcasts. Let's change that. Um, but that's what I would push everyone to do is if you're trying to learn about something, share back those learnings. Um, whether that's online, whether that's in a video, like I don't care how you do it, but share it back, especially with the people that have shared time with you. Yeah, it's cool to hear. I think I'm in that video because because one part of it is about like doing so many clips and how that yes, you are in that video. And and then you you mentioned that on a podcast and people I think Lenny's podcast and people are sharing that podcast with me and be like you're mentioned here. And so it's funny how the whole ecosystem works. And I think the important piece to note is like it's available to everyone. Win and help win is available to everyone and compiling the information is available to everyone. You just ask questions and create a PowerPoint at the end and just 
<laughs> like it's and so. It wasn't a, a beautiful video. It was so like literally simple. like a loom video. Like right. it was, I made it with the script, but like anyone could do that. And so yes, you might not have if you're listening to this the life experience to go give a TED talk, uh, you know, from memory on the crazy things you've done. But you could certainly find an area of life that you're excited about, you want to learn about, you want to learn a lot about. Go ask 20 people, collect everything they said, and share that out with the world. And like, I bet that if you do that, you will see something magical come back to you. Maybe not the same day, maybe not the same week, maybe not the same year. But over time, repeating that process, I think, adds so much value to your life. And you learn a lot. So like, even if nothing comes back to you, it's still a good experience. It's interesting, though. It's not a public video. Is there any reason for that? Honestly, the only reason that it's not a public video is that I feel like I have a higher bar for myself for content that I'm like putting out on YouTube. We, before we started this, I was telling you I'd recorded some podcasts and they're on the feed. You can go listen to them right now, but they're not on YouTube. And people have asked me, like, oh, when are you going to put on YouTube? And I was like, well, I didn't record the video interview, uh, the video intro because we were traveling and it's really easy to bring a microphone and just record in the hotel room closet. Like it doesn't matter. But I, you know, I want my video to be good, so I want to set up a nice camera and have a nice background, and I hadn't recorded the intros. And you were like, why don't you just put them up there? And I think I probably hold myself to an unnecessarily high standard for some things. And on that video, um, I did a lot of editing after the fact. And when you edit audio, it's okay to remove a sentence. But when you edit video, your head might jump. And so I was, I was not happy with like the jumpy nature of the video. Uh, and so I was like, if I'm going to put this on YouTube and it's going to get passed around and shared a lot, like I'd like it to be a little better. So let's sit down and let's record it. But, but then I was like, I just, I just didn't get around to it. So <laughs> I don't know. Like it's, it's not like a secret, but, uh, I'd like to do more before I put it like publicly out there. Makes sense. Well, dude, this has been so much fun. I'm so grateful for you, for your presence in my life. You're such a warm energy, like meeting you in, in person. I really feel it. And I felt the warmth from email too, but it's just a different sense in person. So thank you so much for for spending the time here. I like to end these podcasts with challenges for people. And you gave a pretty good challenge. Oh, we already challenged Yeah, you. I know. It's a pretty good challenge. If you have any other challenge to add, you can drop it here. Well, let's see. So I'm going to challenge people to go the next time they're learning anything, aggregate it and share it. Okay. I'm going to challenge people to go and make a simple survey and send it to your closest friends. Uh, I'm gonna challenge you to take whatever area of life, whether it's work or, or you know side hustle or whatever it is, look at the ways you've optimized that area of your life and see if you can apply those principles to other areas of your life. I think that's a big theme I have is that people look at the way I optimize things and they're like, oh, I don't like doing that. I'm like, I know, but I talked to them for 10 minutes and then all of a sudden they're talking about how they spent like four hours trying to pick out the absolute best rotors to replace on their car. And I'm like, clearly you have that optimization bone in your body. Like harness that energy from the area that you're passionate about and learn how to apply those same principles somewhere else that you're, that's a priority, but that you've never thought about. So if health is a priority, try to figure out how you can translate your passion for optimizing your car to your passion for optimizing your health. And I feel like that's enough challenges. Uh, you know, I could challenge you to go listen to a couple episodes of my podcast if you want, but hopefully I've convinced you to do that anyways. Listen to all the hacks and I'll have some of my favorite episodes linked below. Bill Perkins, Derek Sivers, Gary Vaynerchuk, all amazing episodes. But uh, anywhere else we should send people to no. connect with you further? All the hacks. You can go to the website. You can search it. You can go look for it in whatever place you're listening to this right now. Unless it's on YouTube, you might not find the latest episodes, but but maybe by the time this comes out, I'll get them out there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, Appreciate thanks you. for having me. Or thanks for coming here in person. Yes, sir.